You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecutors too, author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Dr. Chris Corbinol an author, speaker, and leadership development mentor. Chris, please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little about your family, brother. Well, Dr. Javed, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I've been enjoying hearing uh, previous episodes, and I appreciate uh, not only your ministry, your desire to reach into the culture, kind of where we all are with the issues we're grappling with. We definitely need that level of leadership. Um, I know I do. Uh, and so I appreciate your podcast and your invitation to join you and your audience today. Uh, well, my bio is that um, I'm Dr. Chris Coppernall, and I work in a small town of Wilmore, Kentucky, on the campus of the Asbury Theological Seminary. And my official title is Mentor in Residence. I'm engaged with um, spiritual formation, community development, uh, and a pastoral presence here on campus. As you mentioned, I'm also an author. Um, I've published six books with Thomas Nelson and HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster, uh, really digging into um, that segment of the Christian population who takes their faith very seriously. Uh, We may not take ourselves so seriously sometimes, but we really are running the race well, as Paul says, to to claim that prize, to be all that Christ has has, uh, put inside us to be, to pick up our cross, lay down our lives, and follow the Lord. Uh, And that has led to such an incredible adventure. Um, Prior to being at Asbury, I was a New York church planter. I know that you know a lot about that. Um, In the capital district of Albany, so just outside of Albany, um, that was its own adventure. And before that, I worked in the Christian music industry in Nashville, kind of um, um, engaging with the arts to talk about the faith. And and so kind of before there were podcasts, um, I would sit down with the artists of the day, Michael W. Smith and Mercy Me and Casting Crowns and those kinds of artists, um, and asked them about their faith. And then that was syndicated on radio stations really globally, um, about 600 radio outlets in 40 countries. Uh, and just that led to the re- uh, writing of books and to be a speaker. Uh, and today, if I could just wrap up this w- winding bio, um, last fall I was reached uh, about 4,000 pastors from Pakistan and India and Sub-Saharan Africa reached out asking for resourcing such as education, um, advanced pastoral um, competencies, training, um, preaching and Bible college uh, teaching and those kinds of things. And it just opened up another just uh, unexpected uh, trail that only the Lord understands uh, to resource 
pastors living in under-resourced areas at absolutely no cost. Everything that, that I do in ministry is a gift because Christ has given us the ultimate gift and the ultimate example uh, in his death on the cross. So it's so cool that you and I have two, um, two or three things in common. One, New York. Um, two, Pakistan. Um, hard for yep. uh, um, brothers and sisters who do not have resources and do not have um, ability to learn. And uh, uh, God has blessed us here in the United States, of course. And then uh, a third, um, uh, um, love for uh, writing. And uh, tell me some more about your work, Belonging. Your subtitle is God's Call to Unity in a Diverse Church. Tell me about that and about uh, racial justice. And you also have a project called the Learn to Lead Project. First, tell me some about the background for this book. Oh, that's, that's a good question. A uh, long time ago, in the summer of 1990, I was sitting with friends in a very safe park in Ann Arbor, Michigan, just kind of enjoying uh, the sunset and the stars were coming out. It's a lovely summer evening with friends. Um, and we were surrounded by a, a gang, a street gang. Uh, we were harassed and then a weapon was drawn. We were robbed at gunpoint. We were mugged. And then the situation became even more chaotic. And um, I was assaulted, uh, unconscious. I remember waking up after this assault and being uh, disoriented, my left arm over one friend's shoulder, my right over the other, as they drug my feet to a vehicle. Um, that sense of urgency in their voices uh, that we needed to flee the park as soon as possible before there was more you know, danger and escape that situation. Uh, and, and I blacked out again and woke up in the uh, University of Michigan hospital in the emergency room um, where the, the attending physician said, uh, it's so good to see you when your friends wheeled you through the front doors of the ER, I thought you were DOA, which stands for dead on arrival. Um, I was severely beaten uh, multiple lacerations, cuts. Uh, the physical healing would take uh, weeks and weeks, months. Uh, but the emotional healing from that, um, I'm, st I'm still repairing from. Um, it took years before there wasn't those immediate PTSD symptoms. And then uh, uh, through God's grace, it's almost entirely gone now. And in its place is forgiveness. Uh, about a year ago, the, last, the summer before last, I was asked to speak in the chapel at Asbury, and I wanted to speak about the topic of belonging, the idea of who it is that we allow into our lives and who we keep at a distance. And at the very last minute, I decided to include some of this story, which I had never spoken about in 30 years. And the response from faculty, the president's cabinet, staff and students, particularly international students and students of color, was absolutely phenomenal. And I believe that God showed me, not just through that experience, but through my healing, that there's a pathway for racial reconciliation in the church. Uh, I'm doubtful that there's a pathway assured in our uh, Western American culture um, that deals with this problem of racial inequity. 
But in the church and in scripture, there's a very clear outline of what the church should do in response to the systematic racism and discrimination that goes on in our nation. And it is not just blame one race. There's much more to it than that. Uh, but that's what the book Belonging is all about. It traces that story and that narrative that we find in New Testament scripture. That's a very, very tough topic. Yes. You know, racial reconciliation is a uh, tough thing, even um, when you think about believers. So the church is divided over, over the idea um, how much we should do. Okay, so here's the thing. I had this conversation with somebody who said that maybe we should not talk too much because this way, uh, those who are not racially diverse, uh, they uh, they would not feel left out. So if we focus too much on racial uh, issues, we forget uh, um, oneness in Christ. Let's focus on oneness of Christ. What is your suggestion um, how a pastor should go about having those conversations with a congregation? My uh, Great question. My first reaction to that is, the, the history of the Western Christian church, which I don't want to get on a sidebar here, but there's an Eastern Christian church and there's a church in India and a church in Pakistan and in Sub-Saharan Africa and South America. And then there's denominations and there's Orthodox and Christ, uh, Catholic and Protestant and lots of of um, natural, organizational, and some doctrinal differences inside the church. So I'm going to speak only about the Western Church um, uh, of the United States that, that is dealing with a historic issue that goes back to the founding of the country. It's a unique situation in our country of the United States, uh, but our history as a Western church is one of grappling with social issues. So if we talk about the abolition movement to close slavery in Europe, Great Britain, uh, the Atlantic slave trade and colonial slave um, um, practice of, of uh, uh, chattel slavery here in the United States, we're talking about the influence of the church, not exclusively the church, but the church spearheaded the movement to abolish slavery in the United States and in Great Britain. You know, names like William Wilberforce come to mind, uh, the Quakers in the United States, uh, 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 Christians of deep and de uh, devout faith saw the inequity of, 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 a, of the freedom in Christ, the equality that the New, Christ, the New Testament um, talks about, uh, not being practiced around them, uh, not just in their communities, but in their churches. They saw a separation about the rights and the inequality, and they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't justify that. Colonialists had just made the argument that they were free. They made that argument to King George in Great Britain. They said, we are free men. And then they lived in a context of, of an environment where there was not wide shared equality uh, in their own ranks and in their nation. And that graded at Christians and propelled the strengthening movement of um, abolition in this country. That would be my first reaction. If you love the history of the United States, there's a part of our 
national ideal that's been forgotten, which is according to the founders and the citizens of the first 100 years, say up to the Civil War, mid 19th century, the United States saw themselves as an experiment that was long overdue, that men and women would have uh, the agency to choose their own lives. Words like liberty and freedom uh, meant something different in their context than they might in ours. Not to everybody, but follow kind of the general consensus of this. So what happened in Philadelphia with the Declaration of Independence was saying, we are free men and we will choose our own destiny, our own way of life. No king, no government, no one will rule over us. We have freedom. This was their basic argument in the creation of the rights found uh, uh, in the United, the forming of the United States. And as they were influenced by scripture, they moved to abolish slavery in this nation. In the civil rights, I'll wrap up this history lesson, uh, in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, one name stands out above all others, and that would be the doctor, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's not only a civil rights icon, but a Baptist minister. His beliefs um, certainly were formed by his race and growing up in the South, but they were shaped by his thoughtful um, uh, exegesis and, and um, engagement with scripture. His arguments that he makes about the rights of all Americans are rooted in scripture. And so these are the very principles of the New Testament. They are what shape us as Christians. And if I can quote one Bible verse here, it would be 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one part of the body suffers, and Paul says we are all one body, imagine how close that is. Paul talks about eyes and ears and nose and limbs, one body knitted together with Christ as the head. Paul says this in verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And the calling of the New Testament is to see the hardships of another part of the body of Christ. And I don't know what else black Christian Americans can do or say to point out to those of us who were deaf and blind, uh, the level of suffering that is a reality in their daily lives. So the question for Christians who would say, you know, I'm not really into all that stuff. I don't do social movements. Uh, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna you know, get involved in all that political stuff. I just wanna come worship Jesus in church. That this is the scripture that shapes who we are as believers. Well, well said, brother. And yeah. um, I think it takes a certain level of uh, maturity, spiritual maturity, but also a certain level of humility because um, when uh, um, it's so easy to acknowledge uh, diversity in a context, uh, in, in a church context where uh, there are multi-ethnic uh, or multicultural um, congregants are uh, gathered to worship. Um, and it's uh, easy to uh, cop out and say, you know, if you focus on one race, whatever that is, is going to divide, which is true. Race divides, but grace unites. Uh, 
<laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, and I think that grace is not only from God, but it's also we got to extend that to each other to have those conversations uh, rather than having this uh, stern face that, oh, uh, we're just not going to talk because we don't have that problem. So I'm mm-hmm. re- glad that you shared this um, detail. But let me, because of the time, um, let me move to the uh, next question I have for you. Uh, tell me why you started the Learn to Lead project. I am uh-huh. very passionate about leadership training and discipleship. I actually created a platform, I Leadership Center, which basically same idea. And that's there's another thing that we got to collaborate on. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, the same idea because, uh, uh, you know, like you, I travel, um, I have a heart for, uh, the marginalized and especially brothers who can't afford. So, um, you know, just the way you go to middle East and other places, I do the same thing. And uh, the idea is providing free resources to help brothers. So let's go back why you started the learn to lead project and, uh, um, just, Share a little bit about that so audience can hear too. Yeah, sure. Uh, This was actually the uh, research question for my dissertation when I earned my doctorate at Baylor University. I wanted to explore how Christians grow in their faith across the country, according to the uh, research from Lifeway and the Barna Group and Pew. uh, Many pastors, not all, but many pastors are confused and befuddled about how you can increase uh, the congregation's discipleship. And um, they are looking for a plan. That's many pastors will say that's the one piece missing. I we don't have a plan of what to do to disciple our members. Um, and what I found as a church planter is that I also needed leaders in our church. There's so much work that needs to be done in a church plant that's just getting its roots into the soil, particularly in an area like upstate New York, where only about 9% of the population would call themselves practicing Christians. Uh, And so I started a leadership development program on Saturday mornings with the pot of coffee and box of donuts and asked if anyone would like to learn leadership. And the first six weeks of this course, six week course, Uh, about three people were interested and I was so thrilled that I ran the course again, only this time it was seven who attended and when that finished, I ran it again and it was 12 and then 18. And as it progressed more and more of my church members who I felt if I'd have said, we'll have a discipleship class that many would have attended, but it would have been different. There was something about calling it a leadership development course, which it is, that drew people out of their seats who might not feel uh, um, an, an identifiable calling to ministry or, or feel like they are a disciple, that language might feel, make them feel uncomfortable. Or if I would have said, we're all called to be ministers, that might have made them feel uncomfortable. But, but leadership was something that they felt comfortable um, being a part of. And uh, I found that a large percentage of my church members wanted to come and learn about leadership. Now, for the curriculum of that course, it was, it was based not only in skills that we can use, like communication, for example, and how to listen and how to understand one another better, something that is always needed because we tend to talk past one another. But there were skills about 
uh, the purpose of leadership and how God calls us to be ethical people and what our actual mission is as the church and what our purpose is and how God has uniquely skilled each of us and gifted us spiritually and identifying those and identifying and assessing who we are as people because he didn't make any of us twice. We are just unique creations on our own. And that material was so engaging that not only um, did I see high attendance and uh, no no decline over the weeks of the course, good attendance throughout, um, I also got a chance during my, uh, my dissertation to have an intervention where I actually did research and numbers and interviews and collected uh, qualitative data. And I saw that um, each of these church members had grown in their faith, they'd grown in their discipleship. Uh, that was measured because uh, Lifeway has created eight distinctives that about 4,000 pastors and church leaders have identified as these signs show us a believer is growing. Um, the eight distinctives of Lifeway Research Discipleship Assessment, I believe is the official title. And I saw growth in all eight categories when um, when 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 average church members uh, came on a Saturday morning and learned about the Learn to Lead curriculum. So uh, it was very important and accomplishes the goals that most churches are setting out to conquer. That's, that's excellent, actually. Um, very practical approach. Um, rarely you will see brothers and sisters getting excited like, oh man, everybody likes the idea of discipleship in a church uh, um, you know, context. But when it comes to doing, uh, people often lack clear, cohesive answer. Uh, they, don't, they don't have clear answer. They favor discipleship, but they don't know how. And I think part of that is uh, we don't have uh, the, hum the, the humility that is needed to say that I need to learn how to make disciples because it seems so obvious. And part of that is you, you, you're right. Uh, when you say discipleship or you uh, use some other term, minister, that's the other term you used. Uh, both are very Christian term and people tend to be a little uh, less comfortable with that. But leadership, no matter what area, doesn't matter what kind of work you do, Leadership is even at home, you need leadership, right? So I, I love this approach. Um, so I was looking for the link. Do you have the link for us? <laughs> my, my ministry is growing so rapidly. I'm having a hard time uh, creating the online platform. What I do have, and materials are there, is uh, on my YouTube channel, Dr. Chris, our global church, uh, there are about 70 different teaching videos, including some having to do with the learn to lead leadership development. And I'm, I'm all over Facebook, both with an author page and then my personal page. And then last but not least, I have a, um, a website and that's just chriscoppernall.com. So uh, uh, just, a, just a basic um, Google search will pop up a lot of those resources. Yeah, and we, uh, we will post those uh, things uh, in on your episode page too. Um, oh, great. Yeah, of course, your personal website I have, your Twitter, of course, we are connected through uh, that too. But that was one piece I wanted to uh, get some clarification on. But good to know that you uh, people can access that uh, through 
um, YouTube. So here's here's a couple of um, uh, last few things uh, as we uh, bring this discussion to um, momentarily a pause. But I'm because I'm pretty sure I will be bringing you back on our uh, uh, on our podcast. Part of the reason is there's so much that I want to talk to you, and I think it will be beneficial for our uh, list as well. But let me ask you. Uh, Three questions. Number one is uh, the importance of uh, mentorship. That's your profession. That's what you do um, at your uh, seminary. Uh, two, I want to hear about uh, what work uh, do you do with brick kilns in Pakistan? Um, and the third one is how do you, um, how did you get into um, radio broadcasting? So you can take whichever. Um, you can prioritize the questions the way you feel, uh, but I would love to hear uh, something about three of these questions. Something. <laughs> I love the questions. They're all they're all important, and they're touching on different areas of uh, the ministry God's called me to. The first one I'll just take is the mentorship importance. So I mentioned this dissertation that was written and there was an intervention, which means I taught the class, but with the idea of collecting data and having it be a research experiment. Uh, and so when, you, when one is doing um, conducting research, you will have a control group. And I had uh, one group, group A, that received all of the teaching of the class. I had group B, which received all the teaching of the class, plus mentoring, one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And then I had a third group that was the control group, and they didn't receive any mentoring nor any content from the class. And what I found was the group that um, received both the mentoring and the class content excelled in eight of these, eight, all eight of the distinctives of discipleship growth that were identified by pastors. And the other group did not. The group that just had the content did well, but they did not do nearly as well as those with, with the one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And there's two, I'll just list two reasons why that's, I think, significant. The first is when two people sit down and talk about something, uh, the, the content of the class and what was it about the content uh, that, that really stuck with you? What is it that you're, you're grappling with? Where, where's God working in your life? It gives the person who you're the mentor, it gives the mentee a chance to process with a caring person where they are in their faith. And they may say something like, uh, you know, the class was about communication, but you happen to mention evangelism, and that is the part that st I'm stuck on. I don't know how the mentee might say, I don't know how to do that, and I feel like I ought to be, but I just don't know. And that gives the mentor a chance to address and talk through and show different Mm, ways and customs to share one's faith. There's not just one way of doing it. There's several. And through those conversations, it's like keys that unlock the doors for the mentee of how they could uh, solve this issue that they're stuck on, how to share their faith. And in this particular example I'm giving you is a real life example. I talked to that mentee the following week in mentoring and I, and they, uh, she was a woman and she said, Hey, I've got some great news. I had friends or some family in town this last week. And I went through some of the things that we talked about. I just sharing, they asked me, what am I doing these days? What's going on? And I made my answer be that I'm in a learn to lead leadership class. 
and and um, and one of the things we're talking about is how to share their faith. That's so important. I'd love to share my faith with you and just just tell you my testimony sometime. And that was the entrance into this woman sharing her faith for the first time. It just built her confidence and, and gave her some tools to use that made all the difference. Uh, the second thing about mentoring is is this is how the Bible teaches us that the Christian faith is passed along. Jesus had disciples and Jesus discipled them. He mentored uh, those disciples by his example, by living uh, in close proximity, traveling with them, teaching, sending them out on assignments and, and then debriefing with them when the disciples returned. It's how Paul um, mentors as well. It's how he disciples. Uh, at one point in Acts, Paul invites Timothy to join he and Silas as they're traveling. And Paul mentors Timothy. He will later call Timothy his much-loved son in the faith that describes how close they became. We see in the letters of First and Second Timothy how Paul gives assignment to Timothy and how he advises him and how he loves him and directs his ministry, professional and personal lives, because that's how this faith is transferred. The DNA of the faith is transferred from one person to another is through mentoring. And so that's the answer to why mentoring is so critically important in our times. For the other questions, I'll answer them in number three and then number two. Um, I got into radio because I had, uh, it was early, it was mid-1990s, and I had just finished a Bible study um, as, a, as a student um, uh, from Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God. I love to mention that study because it was so influential to me as a young believer. And I was talking to a friend and said, hey, I'm doing this Bible study. Henry Blackaby says, if you want to know where to serve, ask where's the need. Very simple question. So I said to my friend, what, where are the needs in your life? You work at a Christian radio station and what, what are the needs? And he told me, he said, we play this wonderful music and people are inspired by it. But nobody knows, this was the mid 90s, nobody knows who these artists are. And they want to know about their faith. Who are they as people? And I was working in a recording studio in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. And I said, why? That would be nothing for me to ask an artist to tell me about their song they wrote or the concert they had or the faith they have. And I could, I could send you these tapes and, and as I thought about that more and more, I knew if this was true for this man's radio station, which if you've ever heard of the Way FM radio network, which is a huge success heard all around the United States and all around the world, this was a time when they were just starting out with one station, but, I, but they were an influential station for sure. And I knew if this was true for, the, for this one radio station, it was true for many others. And so I, after prayer, picked up the phone and just called stations all over the country and said, I'm producing this radio show uh, about Christian artists. Would you like to carry it? And it truly is an act of God. I had no radio experience. And more times than not, they would say, yes, absolutely. You'll be on the air at 10 a.m. Saturday morning. And uh, my 
ministry partners and I had a goal of, uh, of 20 radio stations. That would be the big time if we could get 20 radio stations. And we launched in the summer of 1994 in 120 radio stations. A year later, 240. A year later, 360. Then 500. Then up into 600. Uh, at one time, we were producing the show in multiple languages, and it was airing in 40 nations around the world. Um, and was on the air for 25 years. We just retired the program um, about 14 months ago. And so that's how I got into radio. And last but not least, uh, about the brick kiln workers and other debted laborers uh, in, in, in Pakistan, although it extends beyond Pakistan, there's a, there's a humanitarian response to the uh, tragic um, um, unbelievable, difficult work that um, primarily Christians, and my understanding is 60% of brick kiln workers in Pakistan are Christian. There are 4.5 million brick kiln workers in Pakistan. And so a high percentage of those brick kiln workers are Christians, and they produce about a thousand bricks a day, whether it's cold or scorching heat, they work every day. And, and how, did, how did this happen? How would you have slavery, this kind of debted, uh, bonded laborers in Pakistan? It's because there's a debt that needs to be paid. For example, if a family member needs surgery and the family doesn't have the finances, they have to take that loan or they feel they have to take the loan or to purchase medication or sometimes because of the culture of courtship and matrimony in Pakistan, a dowry is called for. And so a debt is taken uh, and uh, sometimes those debts are repaid and the person and, or family members will be released from bonded labor. Other times um, it's not as straightforward um, uh, the, the, there's interest on the loan and uh, the, the family can be um, um, you know, fined for certain things so they didn't work one day, et cetera, et cetera. And so those loans are never repaid, even though they, uh, in anyone else's accounting, they would be repaid in certain circumstances, they never are. Uh, and then other times an entire family um, the, the minimum wage, I believe, in Pakistan is about a nine fifty an hour. And um, uh, the entire family is working all day for eight fifty or $8 an hour. Uh, and so it's unfair, but that is the rules set by the boss, the brick kiln owner. And so what happens is these families can ultimately never be released from their indebtedness. Uh, so what... Um, what my my wife and I uh, have done this last year in the last couple of months of 2021 is that we raised money primarily from our own private foundation, but also we wanted our community to make donations as well. And we were able to purchase the debts of 12 families, about 50 plus people uh, that were freed out of brick kiln debt and then after that, our program included buying a stitching machine, sewing machine for the, for the families that said, this is a skill we possess. And if they had a farming skill, then we would purchase a cow or goats or chickens to allow them to have a way of earning income post 
brick kiln work. So it is a rudimentary plan that we have at this point. And in 2022, we're advancing it substantially and taking a whole new approach to bringing humanitarian care, not only to Christians in brick kiln work, but really anyone, who, whatever their religious background may be. That's a wonderful uh, work you guys doing. And uh, as you know, that um, I'm also involved in that too. Um, did you, it may have been a, an error. Um, you said nine or eight or nine dollars. Yes. You said dollars per person. Oh, or per oh, ru- yeah. Rupees, right? Rupees, right. Rupees. Thank you. Yes. Okay. That's good. So yes, thank you for clarifying. Uh, so yeah. our audience understand rupee yeah. is nothing compared to a dollar. So as we close, I like to keep things light because uh, we discuss heavy topics. So please tell me a joke. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. That's unfair because I know some good jokes. And then, and then now on the spot, I'm going to have a hard time finding any of those, except uh, some of those that I used to tell my kids when they were younger. Did you hear, hear Dr. Javid, about the man whose left side fell off? Uh, don't be worried because he's all right now. <laughs> That's jokes. I love those jokes. I love those. And thank you all. So thank you to all our listeners. If you appreciate this podcast, please be sure to leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from diverse voices. Thank you so much, uh, for coming on the show Chris it was great to hear you and to spend some time with you God bless you brother oh God bless you and thanks so much you've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry please check back for new episodes every week